Am I good? Yeah. Okay, guys, so we're going to talk about um, um, it, it, for Christ-like ministry to happen in the city, uh, we have to pattern ourselves as Christ patterned himself when he walked the earth. And so over the next three, four weeks, what I want to look at is the pattern of Christ's earthly ministry. And he did it as a priest. He did it as a prophet. He did it as a king. When he walked the earth, one of the things he did in his earthly ministry here was at different times he was priest, he was prophet, he was king. And I mean, that is a very um, natural thing for the Messiah to be because it had been prophesied about him in the Old Testament that he would be priest, prophet, and king. And throughout the Old Testament, we see priests, we see prophets, we see kings. But in Christ, we see all three coming together, priest, prophet, king. And so then his body has to behave that way here on earth if we are to pattern after his earthly ministry. Because we now get to be all three and we take on these roles so that the city benefits. And so over the next uh, uh, three or four weeks, we want to explore priest, prophet, king. And today we'll just start with uh, priests in the city and we'll see how far we'll go. Um, so one of the things with... Uh, and, and so you have to think of it in two ways. One, individually and uh, sorry, one corporately that we have to think like this together. And if we think like this together, then we can be the same thing individually. In Christianity, it is never a few individuals joining together to create something. It is the something is what needs to catch it first so that the individuals become it. It is the whole that has to get it so that the parts become it's not the parts becoming so that the whole gets it. It's the whole getting it so that the parts become. In the kingdom, it's always like that. It can't be one or two people getting it so that the whole body changes. No. It's the whole that gets it. It's the body that gets it so that the parts become a certain way. So that's how we need to approach this. And so uh, here are three... Um, roles that a priest uh, must play, because we're only dealing with priests in the city today. A priest is a mediator. A priest is a, a, priest is a mediator. Or an inter interceder. I'm not even calling it an intercessor. A mediator or an interceder. Um, and so with spoken words and with radical action, with spoken words and with radical action, we do two things. We invite people and we enable people with words and action. With words and radical action. Action ain't enough. It has to be radical action. We'll touch on that today. Radical action. Uh, we begin to uh, invite people and then enable people to... Enable what? Enable that they open themselves and are touched by the love of Christ. Open to the love of Christ. That they open to the love of Christ. So in a sense, one of the jobs of a priest is to telescope God. Telescope God. God is a distant star. Priests are able to telescope God so that he's much closer. So as a church, when we begin to think like this, that in this city of Vancouver or in New York or in Dayton, or wherever you are, that I am a mediator for God. I'm a telescope. 
I telescope God. I love those words. I don't know where I heard them first or whether I came up with it, but telescoping God is such a cool thing. Telescoping God, where a distant God suddenly becomes so evident because you bring him close up. And you do it through words and you do it through radical action. And we'll examine the radical action a little later. You see this in Hebrews 8 verse 6 where it talks about Christ as a mediator. So we're just borrowing from Christ as a priest as we talk about this. The second thing a priest is, is a priest is a, a proclaimer. A priest is a proclaimer. You find that in Malachi 2 verse 6 and 7 where God is talking to uh, Israel and he says, man, when I call Levi out, I expected people to go to the priests because on their lips would be found the truth. On their lips would be found knowledge. That they would begin to speak and people would know the ways of God. So priests are supposed to be proclaimers. So it's impossible for us to function in Christ's earthly ministry if as a people we don't begin to preach the good news by being faithful to the biblical text while at the same time being relevant to the context. Relevant to the context. That's important, eh? and I'll just pause on that for a second. It's not enough to quote the Bible when you preach the gospel. It has to be relevant to the context in which people live. It has to be relevant to the context in which people live. So it has to be faithful to the biblical text, but relevant to the context in which people live. So in that sense, priests teach God. Priests teach God. As in they teach God to people. So the first one was priests telescope God. The second one is priests teach God. It's okay to be spontaneous, but I would suggest that you be spontaneous after preparing at home. So when I'm going into a situation, I have an idea of the context I'm going into, and I do go over points in my head that this is important, this needs to be said, that needs to be said. And after having kind of thought that in my head, I won't make notes, I won't follow the script, but now that I've prepared in my head, when I'm in a context, I can now go be spontaneous. Spontaneity that is not rooted in preparedness is just a mishmash. It's, it'll be like me cooking. But you need to know what the content is so that like a uh, like it says in Matthew 13, you can go into your storehouse and pick the new and pick the old and present it. So priests teach God. So if you're preaching the good news uh, to someone that you are going to meet today, you have to have an idea of the context and you have to idea, have an idea of the scriptural or biblical text. And when those two collide, you begin to teach God. The third thing the priests are, and we'll just take three today, is priests must be shepherds. Priests must be shepherds. We're talking about us as a church, and if we think like this as a church, we can also think like this as individuals. Priests must be shepherds. And what about shepherds are we talking about? What is it? Why, why shepherds? Because shepherds care. 
In Revelation 7, 16 and 17, it's such a beautiful verse. And you realize that it's the consummated end of Jesus being a shepherd. But when you see Revelation 7, verse 16, it says, uh, uh, reading it from verse 15, uh, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Beautiful verse. Revelation 7, 15 to 17, which will see every tear wiped away should begin now through a people who understand their priestly role if they are supposed to follow in the pattern of Jesus' earthly ministry. This idea of being a shepherd, of taking care, of smelling like sheep is important. And we're not talking about being shepherds to the church. We are talking about being priests in the city. We are not talking about teaching people in the church. We are talking about teaching God to people in the city. We are not talking about telescoping God to people in the church. We are talking about telescoping God to people who see Him as distant. This is not within these walls. This is outside. And we follow David's pattern of a tent. Not a church like this. It is the presence of God in a tent. That tent sometimes happens to be five people, sometimes happens to be 50 people, sometimes happens to be one person. So that anybody can access it. There's no protocol. They can access it anywhere. Because you are there. Because you are there, someone can access God. Mind-blowing. Because you are there, someone has now the freedom, the, 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 the access to God because you are there. That is nuts. That is nuts in terms of who you are. And that is also nuts in terms of who God is because he's willing to be confined through a flawed vessel like you and I. Treasures in jars of clay. So I'll be the best I can. And you will be the best you can. And in being the best you are, you are still a jar of clay with cracks. I mean, in God deciding that I will become man, that I will send my son in, in weak flesh. I mean, what he was doing was much more than saving us from our sins. He was preparing a residence for himself. A full residence for himself. A people of God. The only thing he hasn't done is he hasn't revealed himself in his brilliance because we would not be able to handle it in these bodies. But does he live in this flawed residence? Absolutely. He's withholding himself only so that we don't get consumed. But he's not withholding himself through us. Not, we can talk about that another time. So, um, priests must be shepherds because that's how you are incarnate and that's how you are relational. As in, you are actually present physically and you actually relate. And that is when God can enter lives with power and with mercy. God enters lives with power and with mercy when 
a church begins to pattern themselves after Christ in being shepherds to the city that they are in, not to the church. Church, you have one shepherd and really good one at that. So that's fine. Let's move on to the rest of the city. So, a missional, words sound big but they're not, a missional responsibility, a missional as in um, uh, being on mission for God, a missional responsibility for my neighborhood for my neighborhood requires that I assume the role of prophet, priest, king. And we'll only talk about prophet today, uh, priest today. Prophet, priest, priest, prophet, king. A missional responsibility, as in if you want to be on mission in your city, like Christ was on mission in the cities that he walked through, then I must assume the role that he patterned, and the role was that of a priest sometimes, of a prophet sometimes, of a king sometimes. And therefore, I must too, if I want to take up, if not I, we must too, if we want to take up the responsibility in this city, be priest, prophet, king. Hopefully, it'll really add to what we already know. So, um, yeah. Uh, kind of, because this is the order that you find developing in the Old Testament. First it was priest, then it was prophet, then it was king. There seems to be that order. Though it sounds better when you say prophet, priest, king. But I think the, the pattern is priest, prophet, king. Yeah. So we look at what it means to intercede, what it means to invite, what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, especially in a culture that is more and more isolated. And I'm not talking about COVID. Man, I've been getting texts from different parts of the world with regard to the convoy of trucks heading to Ottawa. Canada is like so famous now. So um, in a world that is isolated, in a world that is... Uh, protectionist, as in uh, protect your own kind first, in a world that is uh, uh, self-focused, being a priest, prophet, king is, goes against the grain, eh? It'll really upset us. As we go further, if I get to where I want to get to today, it'll, uh, it'll upset us. So you can pray that, oh God, please upset us, oh God, can you upset us next week? So and the problem is, this is how the world is. Isolated, protectionist. Trump, Trump's basic idea was America first. And it's the same thing that we have. Acts 29 first. Uh, Christianity first. Uh, our country first. The Canucks first. Burger King first. So it becomes very protectionist. It's like, okay, this is what is ours kind of a thing. And that... Everything that crisis as a priest, prophet, king goes against today. Eh? As a king, he doesn't behave at all like a king. We'll get there a few weeks from now. Uh, isolated, protectionist, self-focused. It's better than usual, Kusun. Yeah. Yes. So a church which refuses to intercede, as in actually step in, uh, invite, 
or love the city, but instead clings to fear, fellowship, convenience, and comfort will spiritually die. One of the things Acts 29 has to be aware of as we go forward, because we are, we are pretty decent, strong church, is spiritual death. Spiritual death is subtle. You don't know you're dying because it's spiritual. You don't feel the pain. I mean, we realized that two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we were talking about why is it that David can say, as a deer pants for the water, so my heart thirsts after you, that my flesh longs for you. And as I was teaching that, I was weeping and others were weeping in different places that were watching it because suddenly there's this realization that even though we had the kind of worship we had today, my, my body longs for you, my heart thirsts for you is not my 24-7 condition. And you realize that spiritual death can happen. And when it happens, because it's not painful, you don't realize it till a lot slips away. And so one of the things Acts 29 has to be careful of is dying spiritually. And one of the ways a church dies spiritually is when it chooses not to intercede, not to invite, not to love, not the ones that come for a service. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about the city. And instead clings to fear that you've uh, got to be careful. Fellowship, it's wonderful. Convenience, yeah, once every week. Comfort, uh, if it mm, doesn't rain. Uh, that's when a church begins to start dying. If it doesn't rain means for eight months we don't have to do anything. One of the verses that really got me was First Peter 2.10. Uh, where uh, this fellowship that we have is so satisfying, friend, relationship with each other, that uh, we don't need anything beyond this. It can be very satisfying. One of the verses that um, um, uh, really caught me was 1 Peter 2.10. 1 Peter 2.10. We forget, we forget, we forget. Prashant was sharing yesterday in a setting how he and his family uh, were Hindus and how they came to become uh, believers. And when, you, when, when I hear that, that's when you realize that Ashat's once... For him, it is even fresher for Mohini, Pawan, and Prashant because they're coming out of a background that had nothing to do with Christianity. Some of us were born in Christian families. We don't realize this. But First Peter 2, 10 says, once you were not a people. Once you were not a people. And then you became the people of God. Let me read it. First Peter 2, 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Something had to transpire. Someone had to speak. Someone had to invite. Someone had to intercede. Someone had to love. Something has to happen. And we forget because I've been a Christian for 30 something years. I've been a Christian longer than half the young adults have been alive. And you forget that once I was not a people. But now I'm a people of God. Once I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy. You would not let your children near me if you knew my past. 
Uh, Hosea names his children strange names. He names his uh, daughter Lo-Ami. And he names his son Lo-Ruhama. One means uh, not my people. The other means not shown mercy. And then God says that I will change their names from Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhama. I will show them mercy and I will make them my people. Somehow reading Hosea 2.23 and 1 Peter 2.10 is making me think that if we are not careful, we can spiritually die. And we'll see how to go about it. Can't be just scriptures. Um, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll not get through this, but that's fine. So here are some of the things you can receive from God and you can extend to people, eh? Do this well. Extend Sedek or righteousness or right relationship. These are some of the things that God offers you every day and you can offer others every day. He offers us righteousness as in, hey Jacob, every day I want to bring you into right relationship with me and the blood of my son is sufficient to do that. The grace that I have in the death of my son and his blood can bring you into right relationship with me. So one of the things we extend to the city as priests and this was something that the priests in the Old Testament used to do. They used to extend to people the way to come into right relationship the way to come into right relationship. Come into right relationship. Can't elaborate on it because in different situations it'll be different. For someone who's been sexually abused to wash their feet and say, Jesus calls you clean can bring them into a right relationship. For someone who is caught in some deep sin to say that Christ died for this very sin in your own words over a period of weeks or maybe in an hour can bring them into right relationship. For someone who is steeped in Christianity but hasn't been born again, to bring them to a place where you show them that you're no longer a slave to these requirements and laws but you are a child of God can bring them into right relationship. I don't know what it'll take. Each of us can figure that out. But one of the things we continuously extend as priests to the city is we can bring you, we can show you, we can tell you how to come into right relationship. The second one, is a, I mean, I'm just writing the words as they are pronounced, not as they are really written in Hebrew, is mispat. Mispat is making things right. Making things right through some action. God does this always. Eh? He's, he brings us into right relationship. And you will see, it, especially in the message version or the NIRV, you will see God say this again and again. I am here to make all things right. I will make things right. So he doesn't just bring you into right relationship. Now he does something to make things right. This lies at the essence of some of the things that Derek and Mark and Pavan and others are doing in Wally to make things right. It is not enough that I bring you into right relationship with God. Now I do things to make things right for you. 
to put things together for you so that in this right relationship, obstacles are removed so you can begin to walk in it. Jesus doesn't make, uh, Jesus doesn't bring me into right relationship and say, all right now, start walking. He makes things right with actions. He helps me resolve things with Nick. He helps me pay back Jeevan. He helps me forgive Miguel. He helps me receive forgiveness from Jill. He does things, makes things right. This is something we extend to the city. Any questions on that one if it's not clear? Making things right is difficult, guys. It requires action. In right relationship is easy. Yeah. Making things right just complicates it. I wish it was just left at the right relationship. Just settle things with God and uh, making things right is far more difficult. Making things right is what Christianity, some Christian, Christian churches and congregations are trying to do with the First Nations. Things need to be made right. It is not enough to have a song and a dance, uh, a reconciliation song and dance. Doesn't make things right. Making things right is very, very difficult. And it does not happen through one action. It is sustained action. Long obedience in the same direction. Any questions? Making things right through some action. And some of the action is restraining evil. Some of the action is protecting someone from evil. Some of the action is um, exposing the evil that is happening to them. This is why making things right is difficult. It's one thing to say to a guy who's being abused, hey, get into right relationship with God. But now what do I do? in terms of restraining the evil that is happening to him, protecting, the evil, protecting him from evil and exposing the evil that is happening to him. This is where it gets really complicated. But my God, when a church begins to rise like this, Isaiah 58, 10 to 12, immediately hits the church. Healing will break upon you. The sun will dawn upon you. You will be like a garden that is watered well. Your thirst will be slaked. You will call and I will be there before you can even call. These things break out on a church without prayer. Next one. Hesed. Beautiful word. These are things God is to you and me. Every day. Every day Yahweh says, this is my nature, Jacob. This is what I want to be for you today. You got some time. Hesed. Hesed means, uh, this word really bothered me. Devoted loyalty. God being devoted and loyal to me. The word for mispath is justice. Justice is making things right, eh? Hesed, devoted loyalty. Where it's an allegiance, 
that you have, an allegiance that God has towards me, and an allegiance I must have towards you and towards the city, an allegiance that goes beyond what the law requires, goes beyond what customs require, goes beyond what culture requires. This is when Ruth, having been given permission by Naomi to go back, Orpah goes back. But Ruth says, no, 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 no. Where you go there, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. This is going beyond custom, culture, regulations, needs. Why? Because there's devoted loyalty. There's an allegiance saying, I will go beyond. And God is saying, every morning, Jacob, I have a devoted loyalty to you. I have an allegiance to you. If you have time, we can walk. And then, occasionally, guys, go back to him and say, hey, you can't just make a covenant with me and get away with it. I want to make a covenant with you. I am also loyally devoted to you. Hopelessly devoted. And then you can break out into that. Hopelessly devoted to you. Most of you won't know that song. Devoted loyalty. Next one. Beautiful word. I love this word. Rahem. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a womb <laughs> inspired tenderness, mercy, compassion. It comes from the womb. Raham. It means compassion. And it's a compassion that has tenderness in it. It's tender. It's mercy filled. It's a tender, mercy filled commitment that uh, the commitment to someone, despite their failure, despite their wrongdoings, it's a tender, merciful commitment. Can you imagine being a priest like that to the city? A tender, mercy-filled commitment to someone, even if they fail and even if they do wrong, to continuously have that. And you can give it back to God. Eh? One of the, one of the uh, uh, images that I always have uh, uh, of tender, merciful commitment to God is when kids sometimes start touching their dad's face and they look at their dad's face and they touch their dad's face and they sometimes make comments like, dad, you look so ugly. And, but, but there's a tenderness in it. There's a merciful commitment in it as they do that. You can do that back to God. Because God does that with you every day. And now you get to give that to ones around you that are in the city. And then the last one, extend to people faithfulness. The word for faithfulness is faithfulness. Faithfulness is constancy and steadiness. Constancy and steadiness in your support and in your compassion. In your support and compassion. You know, when Jeevan first came into the church, I was telling him, hey, this is what God can do and all this stuff, and this is what uh, God can do. One of the questions he asked me was, Jacob, I can commit to this, but can you commit to me in the long run? I guess what? I have. I've been constant and steady in my commitment to him and to Nandigama to the people, and now I don't, even if he dies tomorrow, I'd still be committed to some of the people um, in, uh, that I know through him. This is 
this is what I mean by long term. And then a city uh, is at the mercy of God. Why? Because you have decided to go faithful. These are five words that you can extend to the city. These are five words that Yahweh extends to you every day. These are five words that you can give back to God saying, uh, well, if you think you are betrothed to me, then I want you to know that I'm betrothed to you too. And so therefore, I give you this back. And when this happens vertically, then it is natural that it happen horizontally. Not just to the people of God, but beyond the people of God. Why? Because there was a time when you were not the people of God and you were not shown mercy. But today, you are the people of God and you have been shown mercy. So, here's what we can end with. In this church, we've spent much relational currency with each other. And we are richer for it. In this church, we've spent much relational currency with each other, and we are much and we are richer for it. We we share meals, we uh, share money, we share cars. We've opened up our homes, we've opened up our lives to each other, and there's a lot of relational currency that has been spent on each other. But what if every second week? we went beyond ourselves and practiced Luke 14, 12 to 14. He said, also to the man who had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I just want to leave it there because uh, if I go beyond this, then I'll have to really go into the rest of it. But there is this idea, guys, that we need to practice called radical hospitality. I saw two scenes over the last two days. One was a little girl on the corner of Fraser and 52nd or 53rd. And uh, she had some, she, there's, a, there's a guy who seems homeless and poor sitting outside the shop. And she's got some food in her hands. And I'm parked at this traffic light. And this girl is struggling to give the food because she's scared that people will see her giving the food and they will disapprove. And she's waiting there with the food. And then at some point when she realized that there is nobody around, she quickly went and gave it. And she had this, even though she had a mask on, you could see how happy she was. And she quickly walked away. And I was saying to myself, why is it that a nine-year-old finds it so difficult to give food to a person on the street? Because we have divided, 
we have divided and categorized the city into the ones we can approach and the ones we cannot approach. So I'm sitting outside Himalaya now, a day later, and there's a man who walks past the car and he is coughing like his insides may come out. And as he's coughing, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm glad my windows are up. That's my first thought. Then he goes to the corner of the building and he starts urinating. Then I'm making sure that the doors are locked. And I'm thinking to myself, this is how you are, Jacob. You react so differently from how you should react. Because there is this instinct in us now to be protective of ourselves. Radical hospitality puts you at risk. Radical hospitality strips you of privacy. Radical hospitality establishes boundaries not so that you can prevent people from coming in, but so that you can provide parameters and contexts that people may or may not understand, may break or may not break. It is a scary thing to live like this. I'll repeat that. Radical hospitality strips privacy. Radical hospitality requires that you give up rights. Radical hospitality has boundaries not to keep people out, but so that people understand parameters and context. As in, hey, when you step into this area, it might be a good idea if you took out your shoes because uh, the mud may come on the carpet. If they don't, well, then you end up cleaning the carpet. It is not to keep people out. What if every second week, instead of the young adults, or the old adults, or the in-betweens like me, uh, <laughs> Uh, wh what if, what if, and this can't be done. Guys, whenever hospitality is attempted in isolation or as individuals, it is very hard. But whenever hospitality is attempted as a people, it becomes much easier. What if three of you, over the next six months, focused on two to four people in your neighborhood? Not as some kind of, a, I have to rehabilitate this person. What if it was simply, I will see them as the image of God, I will value them as God values, and I will remember that they are not his people, but they can become his people. Let me write that down. What if it is not a project, but seeing people as created in the image of God? What if it is beginning to value them as your Jesus values them? What if it is recognizing that they are not, they are low army, but they can become the people of God? What if every second week or every third week, let's, let's do it once every three weeks. Where in your neighborhood, over a period of six months, three or four or five of us begin to do this for two or three people. That's it. What will happen within, inside this church will be magnificent. Come share your stories.
Okay, let's stop there. I'll elaborate. Low AMI is uh, not my people. Any questions? Anything you want to add? I I'm 